Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Welcome into this Golf Channel podcast special. I'm your host, Will Gray, with a reminder that Jack, a three-part biopic on record 18-time major champion Jack Nicklaus begins Sunday, April 9th, 9 p.m. Eastern, following Golf Central's Live from the Masters. I had a chance recently to catch up with two of Golf Channel's analysts, Frank Nombolo and later Brandel Chambly, to talk about the World Golf Hall of Famer Jack Nicklaus and what exactly made him one of the greatest golfers of all time. Check it out. Thanks for sitting in with us here. I feel like there's no shortage of topics that you and I could sit and, and, and go back and forth on here. But I want to talk to you today about Jack Nicklaus. Certainly he's a uh, person that's in the forefront of our sport, and, and especially at a time like this with the Golf Channel documentary of Jack uh, coming out to just really look back on his life in his career. So I'll start big picture. When I say to you, Jack Nicholas, free association, what, what term or what thought comes to mind for you? 18. Uh, it's golf. Uh, I've always thought um, that number being synonymous. We were right, reminded this year, the Australian Open tennis, where Roger Federer got to 18, even tennis players were bringing up Jack Nicholas's name. There's just something symbolic about the fact that he has 18 majors, there's 18 holes in golf. Matter of fact, I even tried to pitch a show at the Golf Channel um, when Tiger Woods was, was getting fairly close to 14 majors, I just thought it would be evergreen and it would also document his life. But you'd probably do it back to front. You'd ask all the people he beat to try and get their perception. You know, we've been lucky with the advent of the Golf Channel of seeing every single one of Tiger Woods' majors. But a lot of people don't remember Jack Nicklaus, the way in which, in the style in which he beat his, beat the rest of the field. For sure. And that actually bridges into my, my second point is that when you look at it and you have your, your analyst hat on and you take a look back at Nicholas's career, what is it? Was there, is there a single trait or a, a, a skill or ability that allowed him to separate from the field time and time again? There were several, but I think you've got to start between the ears. The, the best players have something that, that, ev that everybody else doesn't, and, and that's that uh, innate belief that they can get the job done. Uh, I, I'm a great fan of Tom Weiskopf, and he told me firsthand of the Ryder Cup story that, that gets brought up every now and again. They were teammates, they were playing best ball. I don't know who they were playing against, but it was uh, Great Britain and Ireland in those days. And um, Wisegolf had about a 10-footer and Nicholas had a 15-footer. Uh, they're both for birdie and they're both to win the hole. And uh, Nicholas turns to Wisegolf and says, pick it up, I've got this. <laughs> and Wisegolf thought that he'd misspoken. So he looks at him again and he says, no, pick it up, I've got it. And in Wisegolf's word, he said, I've never rooted against Jack so much, but I almost wanted him to miss it so that he would learn that you can't think like that. And lo and behold, Nicholas knocked it in. And I think that it, feels like a Patrick Reed story. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, no. 
Well, I think when Patrick gets 18 majors, we'll yeah, tell exactly. the story the exactly. same way. Yeah, but, yeah. but the, the proof is always in the pudding. The, he got the job done that way. Even when he finished second, uh, the one that comes to mind, uh, Turnberry against, uh, you know, against Watson. Um, you know, Watson was still forced to make birdie. Hits a great seven iron and shot close because Nicholas, when he looked like out of it, somehow believed that he could get the ball on the green when he thrashed it out of that gorse bush. And then from 30, 40 feet away, um, he did the unthinkable. Uh, make the putt just to force that question mark through somebody, another player's head. One thing that we've spent way too much time on is talking Tiger and Jack, and, and there's no shortage of ways to kind of slice and dice that. But one thing that always sticks out to me is we've talked about Tiger these days and going through his changes with swing coaches and swings. Is you look at the relationship that Jack Nicholas had with Jack Brown, and you have one man and, and one coach guiding that swing from a very young age all the way through, and, and it seems that that Nicholas was almost much more self-reliant than you see a lot of the, the top players these days. But how important was that for him, do you think, to have that relationship with a guy like Jack Grout, to have a stable uh, coach all the way throughout? I think you've got to look back and, and realize that golf was at a different time. We didn't have 24-7 exposure, so Jack Nicholas couldn't see his bad swings week in, week out. Like when a Tiger Woods would, would struggle with his game, he would see that and it would be reared one after the other. So I think with Jack, I mean, obviously, they both, he and Tiger Woods, had a similar upbringing in the sense that they did just have one person to rely on, whether that be their respective fathers. And then it was their respective swing coaches. But with Jack Grout, yeah, it was very, very basic coaching, but uh, eventually Jim Flick got in, um, in the mix when Jack Grout passed away. But um, you know, it was consistency. Nicholas's game did change over the years. You know, he would tweak the grip every now and again. The swing wasn't as upright later on. But it did span 25 years. If you start, um, if you forget his amateur career, which was amazing, uh, winning two U.S. amateurs. Um, if you look, you know, from '62 to, to to 1986, to span two and a half decades, is it's never been done. And when you look at the majors, next best is Gary Player, which is 20 years, and I think Harry Varden is 19. So, to I think when you when you look at two and a half decades to only have one or two swing coaches, that in itself is amazing. But once again, I think you point to what's between the ears. He was better than anybody else he played. He was as long, if not longer, than any, anybody else. He could putt better. Also, you didn't have the technological explosion. Basically, he was playing with the same equipment when he was 22 as what he was when he was um, 46 years of age. Didn't have to change drivers. Really didn't have to change wedges. Change the putter now and again. Never went back into the oven to try and uh, <laughs> or look at his TrackMan data, right? Uh, so... Clearly, there's, there's a bit of an age gap between you and Jack Nicholas, but there was a slight overlap there as you're coming on as beginning your professional career. Jack Nicholas was, was in the sunset of his career. Was there any sort of overlap between the two of you among the professional ranks? Do you have any chance to, to tee it up next to him? Yeah, the, the first time I played with him was in the Sarazen World Open. I was the defending champion in Atlanta. Matter of fact, I went on to win that, that, that week, but um, yeah. When you go in the locker room, it's all alphabetical. So having a surname that started with the letter N, it was like Nicholas or Nobolo or Norman. So I would get to sit and change my shoes. So I would rub shoulders in a lot of the major championships. And, and I've told the story on air a lot. I remember coming in one day and there was virtually nobody else in the locker room changing my shoes. And he looked at me and said, what's up? And I said, I feel really nervous. And he goes, isn't that great? And you know, it was just a, like one sentence and off he went. And, and you learn so much just when you get to rub shoulders or chat or even if it's a hello. And then in referencing the Sarazen, we would get to have dinner with Gene Sarazen, about 12 of us. Uh, 
there were, you know, Payne Stewart was still alive in, in those days, and, and, and dinners were great because you'd just sort of soak up what you'd hear. But um, I didn't play with him that much, and obviously I didn't play with him until he was in his 50s. But he still had that ability to get the job done. Uh, he might have lacked for a little power. You don't expect that out of a 50-year-old frame. But you could see every now and again he'd pull a shot from the top draw and you'd shake your head and you go, yeah, you've still got magic. Speaking of still got magic, what was your reaction as a, as a professional at that point in your career when he did what he did at Augusta in 1986? I, I didn't think it was possible. Um, I, I was very heavily involved in golf. I turned professional. And matter of fact, you know, I was born in 1960. Jack Nicklaus was born in 1940. So, you know, I always thought 20 years apart, that type of thing. So you focus because as a kid growing up, he was the standard bearer and he just kept getting better and better. And then it looked like he'd gone. And like a lot of athletes do, they just disappear. You don't expect them to keep playing. So uh, to win, to win you know, 25 years later after his first major championship, his son on the bag, Jackie, who I've met and, and know, um, even the, <laughs> I mean, the calls when he and Jackie are talking on 16 and, uh, you know, Jackie, Nicholas hits the tee shot and Jackie goes, be right. And Jack turns to him and goes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, it's things like that, that they might appear cocky to some people, but it's just who he was. I mean, he had a belief that, how a shot should be hit, and when he hit it properly, he expected a good result. And, and of course, too, when he bared down on, on 17 and made the putt, um, there's shots that you remember. And, you know, Seve, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Biasteris, and, and I talked to the late Biasteris, and when he saw the name, Biasteris was coming down 15, the famous four-iron shot he hits in the lake, and he looked up and he saw the one name that would probably even affect a player of that magnitude, which was Nicholas. And, and Seve hit probably the worst shot ever he's ever hit in his career. Did the same to Norman. So um, it was more than a ripple. You know, it was, it was like an earthquake. The tremors just went through, not just Augusta National that year, but the golf world that year. Well, it is a bit of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. It goes back to that story you were talking about with Weisskopf, that it helps to have that supreme confidence to then be able to pull off the shots. But in order to get the supreme confidence, you need 16, 17, or 18 majors. So clearly he was playing just a different different stratosphere than, than everyone else, even before he got to Augusta in 1986. Yeah, there's two schools of thought. Some say, you know, winning breeds winning, or you learn a lot from winning, but, but the general consensus is, is that you know, only learn from your defeats, because you learn what you did wrong. But if you win at such a prolific rate as Tiger Woods and obviously Jack Nicklaus did, then you would think, well, how are they learning? You know, they had different goalposts. You know, they were high jumpers that put the bar up before they knew they could clear it. That's a different type of personality. And, and also majors, I'm not saying majors weren't what they are now, they certainly were, but um, remember Bobby Jones, who was Jack Nicholas's idol, it was two, two professional events and two amateur events, i.e. in the, the respective amateur championships, British and, and American, and the, the Open Championship and the US Open. They were the four big events of that, that time. So for Nicholas to, to win, no matter what the event was, he was always pushing his own bar. And I think that's uh, it's something that I've always struggled to comprehend because I think most of us always want something tangible. Mm -hmm. The greats in any sport, or even in business, they're able to set barriers beyond what we normally think are possible. I think that when you're looking at Nicholas's career as a whole, there's so many things that stand out. But as you said, so much attention gets paid to the 18 majors, but he also had those 19 runner-up finishes in the major championships. And that's, for me, that's almost even more difficult to wrap wrap my head around as, as someone who, uh, contemporary-wise, have grown up in the Tiger Woods era, and he has had several close calls at, at majors, but not anything near 
19 runner-up finishes, and that goes to your point of, of learning from your losses. But it's hard for me to fathom just having 37 top two finishes at these events that only come around four times a year. Yeah, um, if, to your point, I think if we went back when Tiger Woods was on 14 majors, um, a lot of us thought that that 18 major uh, majors might 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 get sorry net or yeah. or surpass, but none of us thought the runners up would be. Uh, that's where generations change. Um, if you if you look at the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, extremely honestly, you would say that there was a smaller core group, but you still had to beat them all, or at least only have one or two guys beat, finish in front of you. Uh, you know, Nicholas is, Nicholas just took his name with him everywhere he went and just put it on the leaderboard. And, and everybody had to beat it. Uh, it it's phenomenal. Uh, he still played sporadically. He never played a big ske uh, schedule. Um, always had time. If you, if you speak to his, his kids, he watched their basketball games. He had his priorities right in that. But um, when he put his spikes on, and they were middle spikes in those <laughs> days, he dug them in the ground, and he was hard to move. He's certainly a man who has stayed in the game of golf, even after his uh, competitive appearances uh, tapered off. He's gotten big into architecture and, and remains very present at tournaments like the Honda Classic and the Memorial. When you look back, what do you feel like is the lasting legacy of Nicholas on the game of golf? Well, that's a tough question because, you know, we lost the late great Arnold Palmer last year. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked with Jack Nicholas, he was prepared, in my opinion, on the, on the global scheme to almost play second fiddle as an ambassador of the game to Arnold Palmer. And that's the thing I think that gets overlooked. You know, for Nicholas, in my estimation, he was more than happy to be the best player inside the ropes, which he was um, through, throughout his career. And 18, I, I've always thought he was the greatest achiever. Um, you know, the debate will go on who's the better player between Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas. I know that. It's a good term, though, the achiever. Yeah, yeah. There's, because what he did and if he didn't win and where he finished second. But I think he knew that that's what his life was around, and yet he would allow other people to do their thing and, and, and never took the shine away from Arnold Palmer. I think he realizes he has a different role now. Um, he's taken that on, but but sometimes we never give Jack Nicholas the respect for for noticing where he was uh, within that framework of, of of himself and Arnold Palmer. It takes a different sort of a character, for sure. And I think that uh, the Palmer Nicholas dynamic is one that, and we saw last year with Mr. Palmer's passing, just the the outpouring of emotion that you saw from Jack Nicholas about the bond and relationship that they were able to forge is. Uh, something that speaks to, to just how highly they each held each other in, in regard to each other. Yeah, they were adversaries earlier on, and, and when you're trying to beat each other's brains, and it's tough. But mm -hmm. I think as you get older, you realize that one's career wouldn't have been the same without the other. Yep. And, and I'm sure, obviously, the late, great Arnold Palmer would have loved to have Jack Nicholas's career. You could, there's a lot of things in Arnold Palmer's life that Jack Nicholas would have liked. But they knew where they stood, and, and they, they respected each other's turf, which... And the game's better for it. That is for sure. Uh, so as we said, you got Jack Nicklaus, you got the number 18. They're going to be synonymous uh, for many years to come. Frank Novolo, thank you very much for joining us uh, to talk about Jack Nicklaus. Thanks, Will. Pleased to be joined now by Golf Channel analyst Brandel Chambly. Brandel, we're talking Jack Nicklaus, the biopic, of course, as you know, coming out on Golf Channel after the Masters. So I want to start big picture. What do you see as Jack's lasting legacy in the game of golf? You know, in 140 characters or less, right? In 140 <laughs> character class, yes, I yeah. can do it okay. uh, in what? Is that uh, five, five letters? Letter. Class. Okay. You know, he was a class uh, all by himself as a player. And uh, I was just talking to John Feinstein over here. 
And it was one of the things earlier today, I was talking to Ron Green. Before that, I was talking to Dave Shedlowski. Uh, Dave, of course, has written a couple of books uh, on Jack Nicholas, And that's the word that just keeps coming up time and time again. Um, his, his golf is perhaps the greatest book golf uh, anybody's ever seen. But like Arnold Palmer, he always had time for everybody. He was always appropriate. He wasn't effusive, but he was appropriate and classy. Uh, he was a gentleman. And, uh, you know, he was my favorite player to ever watch play the game. And the little that I got to know him, uh, because I was represented by his company, I did wear his clothes, and I did get to go uh, to his house a few times. And one night, uh, I got to spend just a few hours, he and I, talking. Um, you know, a lot of times your, your heroes will let you down. <laughs> And he was everything I imagined him to be. Sharp, to the point, concise, uh, informed on every topic. And, uh, and, and as good as he was, he was humble, too. Yeah. I mean, he was incredibly humble. Uh, you know, I asked him once at dinner, who was the greatest driver of a golf ball he ever saw? And I thought he would either say himself or Ben Hogan, because clearly they were the two greatest drivers of a golf ball ever. Um, and he said, Dave Thomas. And at the time, we were at dinner with my roommate in college. His name was Paul Thomas, but his father was a great Welsh golfer by the name of Dave Thomas, who had lost by one shot to Jack at the 66 Open Championship at Muirfield and had lost a playoff to Peter Thompson in 59 at the Open Championship. But Dave would have been a very obscure player in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, Dave Thomas. Not me, not Ben Hogan. Dave Thomas, and then he went on to tell about a few drives that he had hit. Um, you know, but I am currently reading Jack's autobiography with uh, Herbert Warren Wynn as the, uh, you know, the uh, the ghost, the uh, co-author, so to speak. And he talks about getting paired with Ben Hogan at the 60 U.S. Open and playing 36 holes with him on the last day, and how he was the greatest shot maker he'd ever seen. So again, Jack was effusive in praise of his peers and other players, and uh, always humble when you asked him about his uh, own talents. When you look back at his playing record as a whole, do you put, give more credence to specific uh, events and accomplishments, I mean, obviously outside of the 18 majors, or do you see it as the biggest thing being his longevity and the ability to do what he did for so many years across, a, across uh, the entire career? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> Uh, because you can't talk about Jack without talking about how he started and how he ended his career. Uh, longevity is uh, the greatest test of anything, an idea, a government, a relationship. It is longevity. You know, how long um, um, did they endure in the game and how long were they successful at the highest level? 24 years is the greatest span between major championships of anybody. Mm -hmm. Is it coincidence that the greatest major champion of all time had the greatest span? Uh, you know, that's what it takes to accumulate 18 major championships. Um, you know, he was uh, somewhat of a different golfer in 1986 than he was in 62, um, but he still relied on great long irons, uh, power and accuracy. Uh, he was just more powerful earlier in his career. Um, so, you know, when I think about Jack, I think that he was a lot like Tiger Woods uh, in that he could far outdistance himself off of the tee than his peers and he could with trajectory and spin and course strategy even further distance himself 
but it is ultimately his longevity that I think is his greatest legacy. We often talk, as you said, about the bookend victories, 62 U.S. Open at Oakmont, 86 at Augusta National, but among the other 16, let's say, and for uh, you know, Duel in the Sun, that gets plenty of praise as well, but is there kind of an under-the-radar Jack Nicholas major that you can think of that maybe doesn't get its, its just due? Well, yes, uh, you know, the 65 Masters, it's the only major championship where the supposed big three finished one, two, three, uh, Arnold Palmer, Gary mm -hmm. Player, um, behind Jack, but nine shots behind Jack. Uh, that it's was quite the asterisk. It was quite the asterisk, yes. Uh, you know, that was, you know, I go back and look at that video. I look at it often. You know, I spent about a year and a half writing a book about the golf swing and pretty much everything that I think uh, is important in the golf swing Jack had, and it was on full display um, in 1965 at the Masters. He was just in complete control. He, he literally did what Tiger did in 1997, what Ben Hogan had done in 1953. He just drove it further, straighter, um, and uh, everybody else, you know, looked inept compared to him. You know, it's, it's crazy to use those words, but everybody else looked inept compared to Tiger in 1997. You know, the great players um, are not only great because they won, they won because at their best, they could win by, you know, upwards of 10 shots. I think the 65 uh, Masters, when I, when I think about Jack at his most powerful, that's the major I think about. But I also think about the 78 Open Championship, you know, him winning yet again at St. Andrews, uh, you know, in that Argyle sweater, and Jack would say that it was, uh, you know, one of the more successful weeks he had Tita Green, but the home of golf, and twice winning there at St. Andrews in the span of eight years. Uh, and I also think about his body of work at the Open Championship. People will very quickly say that Tom Watson is the greatest uh, Open champion, greatest Open player, and certainly he is if you're just looking at victories. But if you look at the overall scope of work, and Jack's average major finish um, for a period of, you know, 63 was when he played, 62, I'm sorry, 62 when he played in his first Open championship till 79, you know, he was in the top 10 pretty much every single year. Um, you know, every Thing that you need uh, in Open Championship golf, he had at the ready. He could work shots into crosswinds, uh, downwind. He could hit the ball high enough to uh, to work it to front pins, and he just had an incredible intelligence for the game. Do you feel like we're ever going to see a relationship player coach like we have with Jack Nicklaus and Jack Rowe? No. Well, I, I say no. Um, yeah, there are some teachers that that understand that players play their best when they play with a free mind. What's important to understand about Jack's relationship with Jack Grout is that one, Jack Grout, Jack Nicholas was a very technical person, very analytical person by nature. Jack Grout would tell him to do something and Jack Nicholas would say, yeah, but what about this, this, and this? And Jack Grout would say, no, no, no. You just do this. You turn your hand a little bit this way. Don't worry about what your right arm's doing or your left arm's doing. Trust me on this. So there was that relationship that Jack Grout, having been a player himself and, and deeply studied the game and understood it, also understood what a player needed to know to play their best. But then Bobby Jones, because he had a relationship with Charlie, Jack's father, mm -hmm. had gone to Charlie and said that he had never become the player that he was known to be until he quit running back to Stuart Maiden to fix his own golf swing. 
Now, Bobby tells that to Charlie. Charlie tells it to Jack. Jack had been running back to see Jack Grout every time he had a problem. Jack realized that he needed to try to figure these problems out on his own and also that he needed to play with a sort of freer head. Now, that happened pretty early on in Jack Nicklaus's career. Jack played the entire rest of his career knowing that he only wanted to come back to Jack Grout once or twice a year mm -hmm. for a refresher course. But other than that, he wanted to play with a, a free head, a clear mind. Um, there is so much information right now in the world of golf, and the danger of that is paralysis by analysis. And teachers these days, and I get it, I completely understand why they do, they tend to be more helicopter teachers. There's a tremendous amount of exposure uh, on television if you're standing there when they go to the driving range. And uh, that's not lost on the player. I mean, that's not lost on the teacher. But there's also a dependence upon the, the coach that wasn't present in previous generations. And I'm not convinced that it's to the advantage of the player. But if you're the player and you have the coach there, you're never going to be convinced that it's not because you're doing it. So whatever you're doing, you're going to believe in. I sit in a chair where I'm looking at 50, 60 years, and I see the way one player played not doing that, and I see the way players play today doing it, and I think they're impoverished by all of the analysis. That's my opinion. Um, I think that a lot of them would be better off without vigilant analysis. Well, I was going to say, a lot of times we talk about you know the, the Tiger-Jack debate of who's better in their prime and, and what would Jack do with modern technology, but I guess you can kind of turn it on its head, and if you put Jack in with TrackMan and strokes gain putting and all of the technological advances that the current PGA Tour players have, do you feel like that might have actually been to his detriment? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think you can make that argument. I really do. Um, you know, but when you, and I've, look, I, I think it's important to change your opinions. I'm asked all the time <laughs> who I think the greatest player of all time is. I used to say it was Jack. I have said it's Tiger. Um, you know, I, I, I recently read uh, Bobby Jones on this topic, and, and he's almost convinced me um, of the inestimable um, factors in playing and dominating in one era and how highly unlikely or almost impossible that it is to compare one hour to another because of those, because of equipment, because of agronomy, because of the clothes. Bobby Jones played in a tie, Harry Barton played in a jacket. You can't really get a sense of what they would have swung like if they had had an athletic form-fitting shirt. Um, Harry Varden would have very likely swung upright. All I do know is that Harry Varden dominated in a way that had never been dominated in the game, as did Bobby Jones, as did Ben Hogan, as did Jack Nicklaus, as did Tiger Woods. And that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Now, I can make a strong argument, a uh, checkmate argument, for any one of those players being the best player that ever lived. Uh, but when you do that, you do it to the detriment of the other players, and they don't deserve it. You know, they dominated their era, and that's all they could do. Tiger did in his era, Jack did in his era. I don't think Jack would have been reliant on all of this information to the extent because he, I think he would have seen the bigger picture, but it's very hard to say that because Jack was, by nature, a very analytical person. He was one of the first people to use yardages. Mm -hmm. You know, that is the equivalent today of using TrackMan. You know, it was, what are you, he's not eyeing it? He's actually walking it off? You know, um, you know, people looked at that as being analytical then. And now then we look at all of the analysis that's available and 
you know, it, who's to say we wouldn't do it? Who's to say it wouldn't be addictive? No fun without a few hypotheticals. You're exactly <laughs> right. On the other hand, while I get that you can't always compare um, other generations to previous ones, or you know, previous generations to current ones, um, we also have a lot of things to fill up, uh, right. a lot of time to talk about these it's things. True. And it's no fun not to talk about that. Uh, all right, so I will leave you on this one. If you were talking to a 24, 25-year-old in his second year on the PGA Tour, and he said, look at Jack Nicklaus and take from his career blank, whether it's a, a tip, piece of advice, what's one thing that you think the modern player can take from Nicklaus? Well, I wrote a book on this subject. There you go. Um, and it is uh, resist the urge to restrict movement. You know, I think the bigger the movement, the higher the hands, the bigger the turn with the hips and the legs will lead to longevity. And not only will it lead to longevity, it'll lead to higher and longer shots, but it will ultimately lead to longevity. If you look at uh, the restricted movement of Tiger Woods and the lack of longevity and his body breaking down, I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, nor do I think it's a coincidence that Jason Day is having back problems. Um, and a lot of injuries are popping up. I, I would say, A, you're an athlete, okay? You're a great athlete. You're, you're, you're fit and you're flexible. You should make as wide and big a turn as you could, as you can, to hit it as far and as high as you can, but also to protect your body. Um, and that's ultimately the message is protect your talent. You're the genius, okay? You are. You are the genius. You're the one. You're Leonardo da Vinci, okay? You are not the person behind you telling you how to swing. You're the genius, okay? We learn from athletes, okay? We don't learn from teachers. We learn from athletes. You're the genius. Everything that everybody sits around and talks about, they learn from watching Ben Hogan and Sam Snead and Byron Nelson and Bobby Jones and Jack Nicklaus. When we listen to teachers expound about ideas or theories, they're talking about the golf swings of Bobby Jones, and Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, and Byron Nelson, <coughs> Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer, Tiger Woods, Greg Norman. We learn from the athletes. We learn from the players. It is not the other way around. You learn uh, from the geniuses. I would, I would tell the players, you're the genius. Okay, you are not the person behind you. You are. Okay, they're a pair of eyes. Uh, there's somebody to sort of bounce things off of and talk to, but you're the one that has the ability to, to move your body in a certain way that we've never seen before, to create shots that we've never seen before. Imagine if Bubba Watson were convinced of the ideas of somebody else or John Daly. We'd have never seen the shots they hit, ever. Um, so protect your talent, protect your genius. It's, uh, it's what makes you a star. I'm ready to go now. I feel all, all genius stuff. Well, uh, Brandel, you're going to be a little busy Sunday, April 9th, around 9 o'clock, having just concluded uh, Golf Central live from the Masters. But that's when this biopic is going to get going. It's going to air across three nights, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And we're profiling the 18-time major champ, World Golf Hall of Famer, Jack Nicklaus. So it uh, should be good. Presented with limited commercial interruption for all of our friends at home. But, well, I, I'll be busy. Uh, yes. But as soon as the show's over... I promise you I'll be in my room at, uh, at the hotel <laughs> watching this show. Well, Brandel, thank you much for joining us, and uh, keep it 
tuned to Golf Channel for, for all the latest. And as we said, Jack Biopic, Sunday, April 9th, 9 p.m. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks very much, Will. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.